I'm Danielle Smith, author and host of Your Black Girl Songbook. This is the place and the space where Black women in music receive the credit we are due. How are you? I feel like I haven't asked you that in a while. The world is still wild and crazy and on a lot of days scary. So I'm asking you, how are you? I hope you are managing. I hope actually you're doing more than that. I hope you're not just surviving, but thriving. And as I usually say, I hope you are making some time to listen to, yes, Black Girl Songbook, but to just music. Uh, I still find it always to be something that changes my mood for the better. And if you want, I feel like I should go back and remind you what we've been working on all season because we're coming up on our finale. Like, it's so quick, so fast how the seasons of Black Girls Songbook go. I mean, they, I guess they say when you love what you do, it goes by fast or time flies, uh, to quote Janet Jackson, when we're having fun. But so far this season, we've talked about Aretha Franklin on the occasion of what would have been her 80th birthday. We discussed Donna Summer and the politics of disco. One of my favorite episodes is about Billie Holiday and we get into Shaka Khan also. There's a Let's Hear It For The Boys episode featuring music from guy artists, dude artists that I adore. And we also dive deeply into Denise Williams's work. We celebrated the publication of My Shine Bright, a very personal history of Black women in pop with a great talk about music and writing. We did this with Jamel Hill and my husband, Elliot Wilson. We devoted an entire episode to singer-songwriter Ella May and her new album, Heart on My Sleep. Ella May joined us for an in-depth interview. She was calling herself an alpha girl and I was loving it. And then we talked with legendary broadcaster Donnie Simpson about his life's work especially his many interviews with artists that we love, artists like Phyllis Hyman, like Vesta, and like Sade. But this episode of Black Girl Songbook, we're centering girl groups, specifically Black women in vocal groups. That's so many, so many. And yet, right now, not enough, if any. The impact of Black girl girl groups has been so great and so deep that to even start the conversation is to be overwhelmed by genius and songs tied to memories is to be overwhelmed by just super emotional nostalgia. What's at the top of my mind today is a very specific question about girl groups. From the Supremes to Destiny's Child to TLC, 702, Xscape, so many. My question is, with regard to black girl girl groups, 
Is it over? Don't be mad at me for asking. It's a valid question. I mean, who do we have right now? Just like a huge girl group that we're all just loving and jamming to. Who do we have? I'm trying to think of who we have right now that even resembles, say, what Destiny's Child was doing or TLC was doing or In Vogue was doing. I just don't see it. I know there's some reasons for it. I think some of them have, frankly, to do in this era with money. I think that, and this goes for boy groups too, um, I think... I think, frankly, that there's not as much money in music, period, overall, as there used to be. I mean, we don't buy our music all the time anymore the way we used to. We're really a lot of us, just like you are right now, on a streaming service. The economics of music have changed. And so maybe now if you know, I'm Danielle and I want to start a girl group with Taj Rani and Trudy, then I have to say to myself, well, how are we going to live? How are we going to get paid? And maybe even if it looks like we're going to make a good amount of money, we got to split that money three ways. Whereas if I'm just Danielle and I can sing, ooh, that's a dream. If I could sing, Y'all would be sick of me. But if I'm Danielle and I can sing, maybe I just say to myself, hey, you know, I'm going to be a solo artist. And then also maybe I don't have to deal with people. This goes for girl groups and boy groups because I don't really see boy groups right now either. Where's my boys to men? Where's my Jodeci? I don't, I don't see that. I see K-pop holding it down and emulating, in most cases, to the nth degree of what Black groups have been doing since the 1950s. But Black people, Black girls, Black boys just out here forming a unit like New Edition, for example, you don't see it. And my girl groups, I miss them so much. And when I think about songs like Soldier. If it's Dallas neighborhood, I ain't checking for them. Better be straight if you're looking at me. I need a soldier. That's Destiny's Child's 2004 Soldier Grammy nominated, Soul Train Music Award winning, top three pop hit, a brilliant merge of R&B and rap. Ooh. Well, let's allow Beyonce to tell it. This is from a 2004 interview well soldier is a very southern beat so we naturally thought of Lil Wayne and Tia we're big fans of them they're very talented and they added this rawness and realness and edge to the song and I know we like to recite their raps more than we like <laughs> to sing our song <laughs> and that video and do you remember when Beyonce was kind of alluding to her relationship 
with Jay-Z because, see, this was back when Beyonce and Jay-Z wouldn't even acknowledge that they, like, knew each other or passed each other in the hallway. So when she started talking about boys from the BK, we could all just go, oh, my God, she might be talking about Sean Jay-Z Carter. That's how much we all loved Destiny's Child and followed every personnel change and what kind of shoes they were wearing and what kind of tube tops they were wearing, halter tops, what hair they had, whatever. Think about that video for Soldier, the black and white video, which to me has always been a nod to Flavonier video when that came out with Craig Mack and Biggie and LL Cool J and Busta Rhymes, Rampage the Boy Scout, who we can't forget. That soldier video is epic. Do you remember the dogs on the leashes and the clothes? I think that shoot may have been styled by Beyonce's mom, Mama Tina. See, you've got to remember that this was the time of Destiny's Child's career when major designers weren't really checking for them. This used to, I used to see this at Vibe all the time. I would ask my fashion directors, well, how come I'm not seeing this particular designer or that particular sneaker or that I remember one time there was a particular brand of lingerie that I was into. I won't name it. It was very popular in the 2000s. And I said, I would really like to see that brand on our fashion pages. And my fashion director was like, so would I. But they won't send it. I have my interns asking once a week. I have my market editor on a mission. They just wouldn't send the clothes because we were going to put the clothes on black models and models of other color, but majority black models. And Vibe was in service to a majority black audience, usually somewhere between 70 and 75 percent black was Vibe's audience. And our audience tended to bounce back and forth between men and women and a 49-51 ratio. We had the youth market on lock. And our readers were influencers. But a lot of these brands, they just didn't want their clothes on Black people or being shown to Black people. Now, there were a lot of brands that were awesome. Obviously, the Black-owned brands, shout out to Carl Kanai, were great and supported Vibe relentlessly. And there were brands like Polo by Ralph Lauren and Tommy Hilfiger that supported Vibe and magazines that tried to be like Vibe, haha, relentlessly. But Beyonce has gone on the record as saying she was told when Destiny's Child was really starting to become Destiny's Child, that there were no magazines really outside of the affinity publications like Vibe that were interested in having her and her girls on their cover. 
even as a solo artist, she was told that the big fashion magazines that we see all of the black girls covering now. But back then, for Beyonce and Destiny's Child, even likely for a video shoot that is as stylish and as forward and as fresh. And I'm going to stop because I'm on a tangent, but it still makes me mad. Especially when you think about the impact that Destiny's Child was having on culture, regardless of the iteration, because there were iterations, as we know, before we landed on the final Hall of Fame three. But Destiny's Child was delivering hits like... What? Bills, Bills, Bills? Uh Uh-uh. That's from 1999. It's written by Beyonce, LaToya Luckett, Kelly Rowland, and Candy Burris of Escape, and Kevin Shakespeare Briggs. Pay my automobiles? People want to act like that's not a wildly genius play on words? Pay my automobiles? Uh Uh-uh. You had to love them. That song, Bills, 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 took over the culture that summer of 1999. It was their first number one hit. Bills, Bills, Bills was one of the first songs to kind of re-emerge at TikTok as one of those comeback hits. As my colleague Keith Murphy, speaking of vibe, reported a few years ago for ESPN's The Undefeated, it's been over 20 years since the classic lineup of Beyonce, Michelle Williams, and Kelly reached the girl group Mountaintop, selling over 10 million copies worldwide of their 2001 Survivor album. These girls were going. By the time they dropped their fifth and final 2004 Destiny Fulfilled, the trio was, I'm still quoting Keith right now, his reporting is impeccable. The trio was a Grammy-winning triumvirate whose Black girl magic message resonated with empowering singles like Independent Woman Part One, what? The title song, Survivor. You thought I could Bootylicious. What about that friendship anthem, girl? I'm your girl, you're my girl, we're your girls. Don't you know that we love you? Keith Murphy's reporting is a great reminder that the U.S. leg of Destiny's Child's 67-date 2005 Farewell Destiny Fulfilled Tour grossed $70.8 million. Now, that can seem like an 
abstract figure. Like, is that a lot for a tour? Is that medium? Well, one, thank you, Murph, for that reporting. But as far as girl group tours, the Destiny Fulfilled Tour was a bigger payday than both of the Spice Girls World Tours. Spice World and the return of the Spice Girls. So Destiny's Child last tour was bigger than both of the Spice Girls World Tours. And I'm saying it like that because I think people just automatically assume that the Spice Girls are bigger than Destiny's Child. And no shots, cool group, but they're not bigger than Destiny's Child. The Destiny Fulfilled Tour, as far as the amount grossed and people served, comes in second only. Now, I'm only taking into consideration right now girl group tours. But with regard to the amount grossed and the people served, the Destiny Fulfilled Tour comes in second only to TLC's fan mail tour, which is the best-selling girl group tour of all time. We're going to talk a little bit about TLC, but first I want to bring up my fave song from Destiny's Child, Emotion. I love emotion. I love Destiny's Child's emotion because I loved the original emotion from 1977. It's just emotion that's taken me over, tied up in sorrow, lost in my soul. Emotion is a cover of a 1977 top three pop hit from an Australian singer named Samantha Song. Emotion was written by Robin Gibb and Barry Gibb. Robin's gone now. May he rest in peace. Robin Gibb and Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. You know the Bee Gees of Saturday Night Fever soundtrack fame. And what's so great about the original song, Emotion, one is that Samantha Sang has a beautiful voice and it's a beautifully written song. But the thing is, the Bee Gees are on background and it's money. It's almost too much. Perfection. I have issues with the Bee Gees. We talked about some of those issues in the Donna Summer episode when we talked about the racial politics of disco. But what I'm not going to do is sit up here and act like I wasn't always listening to the Bee Gees. What? I was. And so she was kind of their, you know, creative partner. This is what we are going to do. We're going to listen to a tiny bit of Samantha Sang's emotion. Please listen for those background vocals. You never see me fall apart. In the words of a broken heart, it's just emotion that's taking me over. Gorgeous, right? You couldn't turn on the radio in 1977 without hearing that record. So let's listen now to 
Destiny's you know the problem I have with Destiny's Child and saying it I'm just going to say it and also the issue that I have with Destiny's Child when I'm even typing it or seeing it in a sentence is that when you have to speak of them as a possessive or in a possessive situation and you have to have the apostrophe s on both the word destiny and the word child, that irritates me. It just does. I think it's just a writerly thing. I don't know. But let's listen to emotion from Destiny's Child. You see what I did there? I took it out of the possessive. Okay, I'll stop. And then we're going to talk a bit about some other girl groups before queuing up our very special guests. We have two members of one of the most influential and popular girl groups of all time. So here's emotion. Just like with Samantha Sang and the Bee Jesus, I'm having a problem with possessive today. I really am. You can hear Michelle and Kelly on background vocals. The song was built, it was created so that the background vocals are in the foreground. It's one of the main reasons why I love the record. Michelle and Kelly are sick on this. Let's listen to a little snatch of the song. Since the question is about why there are no girl groups right now or so few, what I should say is there's a recent one, right? There is Little Mix out of the UK. They're kind of, kind of, we were just talking about the Spice Girls. So they're kind of a la the Spice Girls. There is one sister in the group. Her name is Leanne Pinnock. And Little Mix, they were discovered like a lot of talent these days on a reality music competition. Little Mix was discovered on the UK version of The X Factor. Little Mix went on to become one of the most successful acts to win the show. And then went on to have major success on the charts. However, one of the girls, Jessie Nelson who has gone solo. She, yes, has been a victim of cyberbullying about some other stuff. But to our point here on Your Black Girl Songbook, Jesse Nelson has also been accused of blackfishing. Blackfishing is that thing, and now I'm quoting Raven Smith, the writer Raven Smith, and what she said in Vogue last year in an essay about Little Mix. Black fishing embodies the look of blackness without having to deal with the racism, the discrimination, the chronic negative expectations of black people, making blackness something to put on. That's what black fishing is. Still quoting Raven, it allows white women to live black. This is me talking right now. I find that funny. And when I say I find it Funny. I mean, I find it absolutely F-U-C-K-E-D up, but back to Raven 
It allows white women to live black or at least racially ambiguous lives without the inherited mess of literal blackness, end quote. She wrote that, okay? So I haven't really been listening to a lot of Little Mix, no. I choose to listen to a lot of Destiny's Child, and I choose to listen to a lot of TLC. I mean, everybody loves Waterfalls. The song, like the lyrics, when they sing, don't go chasing waterfalls, I think of like, don't go tilting at windmills. I think of don't chase after foolishness when you can focus on what's real, which sometimes it is fun to chase after foolishness. But if we go by what's in the video for Waterfalls, there was so much happening. There's so much happening now. So maybe there's so much happening always. And TLC was just trying to say, like, just watch yourself, you know. Waterfalls is the third single from TLC's. We throw around that word epic, but crazy, sexy, cool? Oh, no, no. That's epic. It's the third single from TLC's epic 1994, Crazy, Sexy, Cool. I love TLC for many reasons. And one of the biggest is their actual style, like how they presented themselves from the word go, from their debut album, ooh, on the TLC tip, which believe I thought, and so many of us obviously thought, was fresh as hell. Ooh, on the TLC tip? It just sounded real, like, hip-hop. It didn't sound like girl groupy. They weren't like the somethings. They were TLC, T-Boz, Lisa, and Chili. I was struck hard in love, off the rip, the way they moved on stage, their resistance for the entirety of their career as a group, they had a resistance to soprano. We talk about sopranos and we talk about, I guess, altos a lot here on Your Black Girl Songbook. It's rare that we really talk about like a good contralto, which is what carries most of TLC's records because T-Boss is doing the singing and that's how she brings it. And what I love about T-Boss too is that she's like, not only am I a contralto, oh, I'm going to give it to you lower than that. And you're going to like it. Oh, I love TLC. TLC dressed like girls from the 90s dressed when we were going to rap shows. That was the energy. Not like they were going to an R&B show. Because it felt like back then, if you were going to an R&B show, you pulled it together, as my sister and I used to call it, high and tight. That's what you did. It was an R&B show. But if you were going to a rap show, 
if you were going to Budweiser Superfest or you were going to see who, I don't know, LL Cool J, MC Hammer, whomever was hot back then, you needed to be comfortable. Sneakers and jeans, navel out, cute and comfy, sexy. That's what TLC was bringing. It was revolutionary, actually. They reinvented the whole mood of girl groups. They were not matchy-matchy. Sometimes they were matchy-matchy, but really rarely wearing the exact same outfit. Like if they were going to Grammys, maybe the outfits were all of the same fabric, but they didn't have on the same one. They were rarely, if ever, wearing a dress, which is revolutionary for a girl group. But everybody would have on a different little type of outfit, even if it was the same fabric. And those names, they even had hip-hop-like names, T-Boz, Left Eye, Chili. Come on. It was nothing cooler. What's funny to me is that you all are used to it. It was new to us. It was brand new. And they had that Southern energy right when it was like, the South has got something to say. Listen. There's some wild girls, too. Wild girls. TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool came out when I was music editor at Vibe Magazine. And I remember clearly that famous slash infamous cover of T-Boz, Chili, and Left Eye on the cover of Vibe in, like, uh, fireman gear, fireperson gear, firefighter gear. So what? So what, why was that a big deal? Why is that a classic cover? I edited that cover story too. It was written by the great Joan Morgan, who, if you haven't read her classic book, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, you absolutely should. But the whole firefighter thing came out of the fact that Left Eye had recently set fire to her then-boyfriend-slash-NFL player, Andre Risen. She had set fire to Andre Risen's mansion. So that was wild because I'm saying she set fire to it, but it burned all the way, like, gone. It's not like just like the little kitchen was gone or a little closet or a little entryway. No, ma'am, Pam, the house was gone. Oh, she was arrested. I think she pled, like, there was community service involved. All this while Crazy Sexy Cool was on its way to going diamond. Going diamond means over 10 million albums sold, and Crazy Sexy Cool is at 11 million. Which leads me to say how Criminal, crazy, wild, unfair, mean, sad, it is that TLC had to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1996. So this is just like, what, a year and a half or something after Crazy Sexy Cool came out? After winning Grammys, they did a whole, um, you can find it on YouTube. They did a press conference to tell folks. We're broke, and here's why. 
things were happening in the 90s. Because then after the Chapter 11 bankruptcy, it's, one, it's not like that broke them up. It's like girl groups, sometimes they break up. The Supremes broke up. Destiny's Child, they say they haven't broken up, but they're not recording together. This didn't break them up. They stayed united. They really stood there on that day at the press conference, united. In Vogue broke up. TLC stayed united. And so then comes fan mail. Fan mail. Fan mail. Are you kidding me? We're easing up now into the late 90s. Do you remember? Of course you remember. You don't have to remember because No Scrubs is still on the radio like all the time. Always taking my what he wants and just sits on his broke ass No, I don't want your number, no. And what about the second single? Unpretty. That album is huge, too. If it's not at Diamond, it's like a whisper away. But then, and see, this is why the TLC story is so heartbreaking. And this also goes to why there is a Black Girl Songbook and why there is a Shine Bright, a very personal history of Black women in pop, which is my current book. It's because TLC has so much organic drama in the life of their group. So much individually, together, as women, as some of the most popular recording artists of all time. Where are the magazine covers. Where are the multiple, like, biopics? Where's the documentary series? And again, since I'm struggling with possessives on this episode, I'm saying series, plural. Where is it? Where's the statues and stuff? Have we seen a Lifetime Achievement Award yet? For TLC, there is unfortunately a very sad ending to any piece of content that charts the entirety of TLC's career because we lost Lisa Left Eye Lopez in April of 2002. Let me tell you about that day when that news was received. I feel like we used to, so much was on the radio and it depended on who your hopefully local radio personality was, how that news was really stated. It was just, it was like when Aaliyah passed, it was just, how is this possible? She was 30. It was a car accident. She was on what was characterized as a humanitarian trip to Honduras. I'm going to read a little bit from the New York Times obituary because it's awful. The accident occurred in Roma, a popular vacation spot on the Caribbean coast. 
It was near a Honduran village where African healing was practiced. Lisa Lopez was at the wheel of a rented Mitsubishi sport utility vehicle and lost control. The police there said the SUV veered off the road and turned over several times. Other people were in the automobile. They survived. Seven people. Her sister was in the car, her brother, that's Raina and Ronald. There was an R&B group called Egypt, and there were two video producers. The producers were working on a doc about the spiritual journey of Lisa. This is, man, listen. You know, the thing about TLC, too, is that it can almost feel like Lisa just moved to Honduras and was like, you know something, I'm done with the the running and gunning and the competitive ass music business that tried to break me. So I'm just moving. I'm just on a beach. I feel like as black people so often we make that story up for our black stars that die young. You remember when we all used to say that Tupac was in Cuba? Like this was really a whole thing that was like he's people were really trying to believe that. And I thought it was ridiculous, but sometimes I really do, you know, you just wish so hard that it wasn't true. Because like I said, they never broke up. There was talk of Lisa joining um, or getting signed to The Row, which was um, the former Death Row Records. And as our story consultant, Ty says, it really can feel like the group never recovered from that moment. In Honduras, they never replaced Left Eye, like, say, Motown replaced Diana Ross in The Supremes. And even in 2005, when there was a little reality show moment, why was it called Are You That Girl? But it was. Chile and T-Boz were supposed to choose a new member. And when the streets rose up, like, I know you're not trying to replace Left Eye. And I don't think they were. I think they were trying to work and they stressed that they were looking for someone to perform with them just kind of as a one-off so let's listen to creep though because these lives are to be celebrated right creep was written and produced by dallas austin it's also from 1994's crazy sexy cool we all wanted those jewel tone flowing satin pjs did we not Let's enjoy just a snatch of creep. And after that, we're going to speak to Cindy Harron and Terry Ellis of In Vogue. Let me hear you say. What a record. What a record TLC's creep was. It was released in 1994, four years after In Vogue's debut, Born to Sing. Listen, In Vogue just like brought the girl group thing back for us. Born to Sing was released on Atlantic Records, the original classic four are Terry Ellis, Dawn Robinson, Cindy Heron, and Maxine Jones. And you know, that even if the group wasn't formed 
in my hometown of Oakland, California in 1989, In Vogue would still be one of my fave groups ever. In Vogue is in the tradition of the Supremes, baby love and all that, stop in the name of love and all that. In Vogue is in the tradition of the Dixie Cups going to the chapel and we're going to get married and all of that. What about the Shirelles and the Ronettes? These are our girls. These are our girls. And in Vogue brought this beat back. There had been like a drought, which now that I'm thinking about it, maybe that's what we're in. Maybe we're just in a girl group drought. Maybe, in fact, the future is bright. As a matter of fact, there is a girl group called the Shindellas that I actually really, really love. All my fingers are crossed that this is a drought because I miss the energy of Black women singing together, having rehearsed, going for perfection in harmony, really creatively dealing with the emotions that they're translating for us together. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I love a good solo artist. I do. But voices in unison, Black women's voices in unison, when I say there's literally nothing like it in the world, the whole energy of girl groups. Like I said, I loved when TLC flipped it on its head, but I also love the traditional girl group energy. That energy, that energy of let's match our dresses, let's sing in harmony, let's, let's be beautiful, let's set a very sophisticated tone, let's do that. Like, let's have our hair and nails done, done. And then get up there and sing on stage like it's not even difficult. Come on. And Vogue did all of that and it worked. But what's wild to me about In Vogue, because they have hits on hits on hits, and we're going to talk about their hits with Terry and Cindy, but it's wild to me that while In Vogue has won American Music Awards, they've won a Billboard Award, they have Soul Train Music Awards, they have a bunch of MTV Music Video Awards, but you know what? Invoke has been nominated for seven Grammys. Seven. Seven Grammys. It's a lot of Grammys to be nominated for. And they've never won one. I'm sure they're fine with it. I'm sure they are, but I'm not. I'm not fine with it. Because I count these kind of things up. Zero for seven is not Invoke. It is not. But like I said, I know they don't care. They know who they are and what they've done and what they've given to us. Their work is legendary. So let's talk to Terry Ellis. What? And Cindy Heron. Mm. Right now. Hi, is that Danielle? Oh, my, my camera's not on, huh? 
Uh, Hi, how are you? This is Danielle. Hi, hey, Danielle. Is this Cindy? Hey, what's going on? Long time no see. Talk it's really, you. it really. <laughs> look at, look at you all. Uh, looking gorgeous as hell. Oh, thank you. I see that makeup is glowing. I see Afro puffs. I see things happening. It is so good to see you guys' faces. And listen, good we're to just going to. It really. Along. I cannot believe that we have a whole half of In Vogue <laughs> with us here today. People cannot see my mouth open because this is audio, yes. but my mouth is open. So let me just explain to you what these ladies are giving right now. Because <laughs> Terry's drinking tea like she has a show in a few minutes. Number one, she probably been drinking that same tea since she was like 16. She's drinking it. She has Afro puffs, a beautiful part down the middle. Um, there's some place with some beautiful cushions behind them. And Cindy's, remember how we all used to want Cindy's cheekbones? Well, we still yes. do. <laughs> we still do. She's got the hair flowing. It just, everybody looks wonderful. You guys, thanks for joining Black Girl Songbook. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having us, Danielle. It's so good to see you. You know, we go way back. We do. I don't even want to talk about Hold On. I don't. The whole song is beautiful. It's an audacious step into a crazy and competitive industry. You guys were walking in the 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 on the path of the Supremes. But somebody's gonna have to start telling me the story of that intro. And I want to know who's going to start because I don't <laughs> know if I'm just really thinking of intros to songs that are absolutely perfect in every way. The attention to detail, the arrangement, the interaction between all four. I mean, it's a classic among classics. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we, we all, all of us um, in Vogue and Denzel Foster and Thomas McElroy were big fans of of the Jacksons, the Jackson Five yeah. and the Jacksons. And we grew up on that music. So Denny, it was his idea mm -hmm. to do an acapella intro to the song. And we thought it was a great idea. Yeah. Let's listen to the Jackson Five for a quick second. They're in 1969, Who's Loving You? Michael Jackson's vocals are jaw-dropping. classic material right there and so for hold on it was denzel foster who he worked out the harmonies for us and we sang it and and they put it on the beginning of the song and i don't know what gave them that idea because it was unusual for the time like no yes. one was doing that i'm not to mention we thought it was great 
our record company didn't love it for, um, as the intro to the song. They just felt like, hold on, was not a radio song. And that intro definitely was not radio friendly because of because of what the music was doing back. You know, nobody was doing it. So what they did was initially they serviced the song to radio without the acapella intro. Backstory, but backstory, somebody, backstory. Somewhere, but somebody somewhere in radio world, in DJ world, found the one with the acapella intro because it was on the album. Yeah. And they was like, I'm, I'm going to be the first to play this because <gasps> nobody's doing it. And then it just yeah. caught on. Then before we knew it, yeah. it was radio it was friendly. Wildfire. <laughs> All yeah. of a sudden, right? So did you guys have any feedback on why the actual body of the song wasn't considered a radio single? Because I don't know, maybe just because... I was in Oakland and I think y'all were still very much around Oakland at that time. I felt like the folks in Oakland radio and Bay Area radio jumped on it. But you're saying in the yeah. rest of the country, maybe not? No, it was the Bay that jumped on it first. And it, I, I think, you know, Tommy and Denny, you, you know Tommy and Denny, their yes. background. Oh, and of course. Uh, Club Nouveau. Club Nouveau, yes. Social Club. All that. You know. Timex Social Club, Club Nouveau, all this great, very new sounding Bay Area music. So they were already pushing boundaries anyway, musically. And so when we got together, um, and all of us love different genres of music. And like Cindy said, we love the Jackson 5. So it was just, you know, it was normal, for I think, for Tommy and Denny to want to do something so edgy and bold like that. Uh, but yeah, the record label was not feeling it at all. They did not think it was a hit. Um, and they were going to bypass it. And the Bay jumped on it, Bay, Bay Area Radio. I was just going to say, I think it was the vocal delivery, too, that Michael, oh, yeah, Jackson delivered it with, you know, because all of us follow, you know, all of us that did the song after we all follow. He created the blueprint. And I think it's the soul. He represented the essence and the soul of our culture. When he sang that song. He really did. Yeah. He really did. Do you guys remember the day you recorded it and where you were? Oh, yeah. Where were you? We were at uh, Starlight Studios in, in the Richmond. In Richmond. Wow. Richmond. Yeah. Yeah. Little studio. I was going to say, that's a real <laughs> studio. But some classic records yeah. oh, have been recorded yeah. there. Yeah. And it was yeah. just a tiny spot. Like, it was like... It's very tiny. A little, a little control booth and one room to record yeah. in and uh and that was where we did that's where we recorded it yeah and i'm sure you yeah, guys Rich weren't dressed up as like the in vogue that we all know when you record i'm sure you guys were just kicking it yeah. in like jeans or tennis shoes mm -hmm. or what was it like yep yep that was it yep that was it that's pretty much <laughs> it yes, yes, yes. i probably had some cowboy boots on though because i'm still <laughs> wearing my after leaving houston right you know, and Texas we weren't girl. even and right. we weren't, we didn't even, we didn't have, we, we weren't called in vogue yet. Yeah. We, we didn't come on that name yet. Like initially, because when we, in those early recording days, like before we recorded that song, we recorded a couple of songs for Denzel Foster and Thomas McElroy's mm. FM Square album. Yes, and so the name we picked for ourselves was called For, for you. you. The number four dash you. 
That was our original no. name. No. Okay, first of all, I like to think I know a lot of things about music. I didn't know that. When we, saw the credits, when we saw the credits on the album, on their album, yeah. except for you, we were like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm do you guys remember that energy in the Bay Area at that time? Because between in Vogue, Too Short, Tony, 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 Digital Underground, um, Tupac obviously was there, things were happening. Do you guys remember that energy and what it felt to be a part of like Too Short? What it felt to be a part of like a real musical scene? Yeah, yeah. The, the bar was set really high and it was all about just, I mean, really working really hard to be the best you could be mm. or the best bird, what you were trying to be. Um, and the music was just on a whole nother level. Everything was musical. Um, you know, it, it, we hadn't even gotten into the digital age yet mm-hmm. yeah. with our music. Everything was analog and it was just, you know, it was like, um, it was like uh, just passing drugs around, so to speak, you know, like <laughs> yeah, music. It was, know? though. A good music. Where's that good music? Pass that good music on, you know? Yes, it really was. And, and, and musicianship. Musicianship was like on a whole nother level. It really was. Whole nother there level. was a certain just a energy in the Bay Area yeah. at that time. You would just go out to certain clubs or to see people play and you would just get caught up in like what am I doing like everything just sounds good you remember how yeah. everybody used to go out to Yoshi's and yeah, you know, yeah. yes to hear who yep. and, yeah. and, and you know we were we were all following the footsteps of the, the people our predecessors who went before us like yeah. mm-hmm. Sheila E Right. Yes. For them, Tower of Power yeah. and Tower for them, even the whispers, all of that. Yes, yes. the whispers. Yes. Right? Like we, there's a, yeah. you know, the bass got a legacy of music it does. Yeah, with a very high bar. Yes. Yeah. Did we even say the Pointer Sisters? I mean, okay. Come right. on, West right. Oakland, let's yeah. go. Okay, so oh, let's jump ahead a little bit. Can we talk about What a Man? Did you all know when you were making that record that you guys are at the forefront of the whole rap and R&B merge? No, no we didn't know it until until the song became a hit. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we, we just thought it was a great collaboration. We were invited to collaborate with Salt and Pepper and... Um, and, and it was, you know, and we just, we, we were big fans of salt and Peppa. Right. And so we just thought, yeah, let's jump at that. That'd be yeah. so fun. And, but we didn't know, you know, how it would be received or, you know, we did, we had no idea. It was just a great opportunity. Yeah. And, and a fun opportunity. And then when the song hit, we were like, wow. Uh, wow. Oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, it's such a, um, I feel like uh, every, everything about the song is, is dope because one is just like, I feel as women, men are always looking at us and mm-hmm. saying how they feel about 
our bodies and our faces and how we carry ourselves. And this was such a song where it was like from the woman's point of view. And you know what I mean? And it was so sexy, the details in Salt and Peppa's lyrics um, about the way a brother's jeans are fitting on his body, Right. right? But the thing about that in Vogue hook to me was the words themselves aren't necessarily like sensual. It's like you could be at church and say, ooh, what a man, and keep it moving. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Let's listen to a tiny bit of it. What was that record? Were you guys with Salt and Pepper or separately, or how did it go down? We were separate. Yeah, yeah. Um, their producer Herbie Herbie Lovebug, uh-huh. Herbie right? Azor. Yeah, Herbie Lovebug he, Azor. Um, he just tracks over to Tommy and Denny, and and we got in the studio, and and Tommy and Denny recorded our vocals, produced our vocals, our our section and mm. stuff. So. So yeah. you guys were just in the studio, and you heard this rap, and are you like? Okay, you've just, how do you get from, you know, I always talk about Black women conveying emotion and energy. How do you get from, I just came from Flint's and had some barbecue and now I'm at the studio <laughs> to, and I'm making this up. Y'all could be vegetarian. I don't know. But <laughs> I just mean, or I was just driving down Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. I had to stop and pick up my dry cleaning on the way to the studio. But now I need to go in here and deliver some of the sexiest, like, energy that is known. How do you go from A to Z like that? What is, like, are you concentrating or what zone do you go into? Really, I think it's it's just like, okay, what's the note? (laughs) How's that go? What's my part? Right. Like, you just jump right into, let's get this right. But, you know, I, I, I think, like... For me, I don't imagine this whole sexy thing. Like my brain just can't even like I have to. I'm in the moment. What's my note? Okay, is this right? Did I sing that right? Are we? Are we? You know, is this working? What is that? Okay, all right, let's do it again. You know, it's like you just jump into the micro moment of just getting it right, and then the producer mixes all that and puts it together. And it's like, oh, there's the picture. What wow. a masterpiece, you know, she's leaving like she a little bit out, out of this equation. Okay. And, um, and she probably, she's saying this, but she probably doesn't realize she does it. Um, but Cindy's an actress and, you know, singing a song, especially in the studio, we have to convey the, 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 the theme, the concept, the, the feeling, the emotion of what the song is about. And she does that very well. She's just she not does. thinking about that part right now, but also to um, just to piggyback on what she's saying, that's the importance of a good producer. Mm. Tommy and Denny are so good um, vocally producing our vocals. Like they know us. Um, and what's really cool is the fact that they're, we- they're that they're men, um, but they they understand um, the essence. And I think maybe because they have good relationships with their you know their their mothers, mm-hmm. their mama's boys. Um, but they're really good at pulling that emotion out of us. Really, really good at that. And they know our voices really well. Too, so. and, and I will say, but for what a man, Herbie, Herbie Lovebug produced the 
the the vocals and you know you would think for for a guy who produces you know one of the nation's biggest female rap groups mm-hmm. that rap is this thing like not vocals but he came in there and just you yeah. know he pretty much did what Tommy and he, Jenny did he, yeah, he knew he, what to do he did he, he, he knew how to pull that out yeah and he's a musician so yeah yeah it's it's such a phenomenal record and you guys are just I mean, to me, the thing, one of the best things about In Vogue is that it feels like you guys had been singing together since you were three years old. Yes. Yeah. That trips us out, too. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you guys are in the Little yeah. Sunbeams Choir or something like that. It oh, really, <laughs> it really does. It feels yeah. because the... The way I like when Cindy was saying, though, like, what's my note? Because it's like... I, I honestly am happy to know that someone's asking what their note is because in my imagination, you guys just all walk in magically knowing your notes and parts and just start singing. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, Uh-oh. no, no. We we had we learned it there on the spot. Yeah. Um, but what's even let me tell you what's even trippy about that too is, you know, when we ask what's our note, we have to um what word am I looking for? We have to translate yes. what our producer who does not sing at all, we have to translate what he's giving yeah, us. Yeah. So if he's he'll saying, give us a note. But does he say, does he give you a note or does he give you an emotion or does he give you both? He'll give, he'll us, give us the note. He'll give us his best. Yeah. Um, um, his best version. His of best the version note. of the note. His best falsetto. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're doing this. <laughs> What is it? Okay. Okay. And, and we know. We know what he's, where he's trying well, we to go. Got it. I'm we leaving got that it. in too, right. because whatever y'all were just doing, whatever y'all were just doing, does not sound like involved <laughs> at all. Okay. So let me ask this real quick before I move on. I have two more songs I want to ask you about. But Terry, you are soprano? Alto soprano, yeah. Alto soprano. Cindy? Yeah. Cindy? I'd say alto soprano too. Okay. Yes. When did you know that that's what you were? Um, <laughs> probably in uh, in junior high school um, because I, I sang in the choir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, we have to be, you have to be in your section, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that- when I was when I was then, I could not do. I I had a much higher Register. Right. I, I, was, I wasn't an alto then, but then now as, as I gotten older, my register, I'm, you know, I've gotten lower. So yeah, same yeah. here. So, um, but still I can, I, I, so I would say an alto, but I can still sing a soprano if I have to. Yeah. Same Terry. Yeah. Same. Yeah. And usually when we're in the studio, when she says, you know, what's my note? It's it's usually just you know just tell me what am I supposed to be doing, and and then we just go for it. It actually doesn't matter what the note is. <laughs> we just try to do it. Mm. Um, but for us, like I said, they know our voices really well, so we're usually soprano, alto. We go between the two. Go between the two. Let's talk about "Don't Let Go" for a minute. To me, the group is conveying a fat like an ask. Of, of a partner, like don't let go of our situation, but it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel thirsty though. 
It doesn't. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel a begging. Yeah. It's it's just very much saying almost the what I hear the tone is in my head is like you would be unwise, right? To let this situation (laughs) falter, (laughs) right? So just I love to know the day of stories. Do you all remember first hearing like of you know about the song, seeing the lyrics, like? What is an origin story for Don't Let Go? It's just so beautiful. You probably remember that one more than that. Well, it was written, you know, it was written to be a part of the soundtrack of Set It Off, the movie. Yes, yes, yes. So, yes, and I and listen, all Sleepy Brown, way back then, organized right, noise, yeah. way back then. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was ahead. These people would go on to win all types of, like, how did it feel to be working with some different folks? It was it good. It, it felt good. Yeah. I mean, we they, you know, we we felt like they were great songwriter and producers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it, you know, it, it was different, you know, because we we had only worked with Tommy and Denny up until that point. So mm-hmm. it was definitely, you know, different. But the but the the song was a great song and and just the the their creative energy and, and work ethics, just the way we, you know, we worked together, yeah. um, it, it was really great. It was, you know, good experience for us. A, a beautiful song, a great movie. Um, a great movie. You know, so just that whole, yes. So the whole opera, it was just really a great experience for us. Yeah. Okay, I lied about something because I really now have two more songs to ask you about. <laughs> I need to just talk about the clothes in the Free Your Mind video. Do you guys remember, like, first of all, the song was everything and the rest will follow. Be colorblind. Don't be so shallow. All these great moments. Everybody's part just to use the word set it off. But I'm talking about the style and the energy. What was that day like? And how many days did it take you to shoot that video? Was that a two day? That was a two day shoot. It was about a two day shoot. Two, it looks like a 10-day shoot. <laughs> <laughs> no, nope, yeah, two about a two-day shoot. Yeah. And um, and the whole, you know, the idea, well, you know, first of all, the song, um, you know, it was it was an edgier rock, you know, song. Black girls, yes. black girls didn't rock back then. So we were already kind of mm-hmm. pushing the envelope, but we were on a runway and it and it needed to look like we were at a uh, a fashion show, but not your average fashion show, right? Yes. Different, different patron, different crowd of people. Yes, different, multicultural, multicultural. Yes, different setting. Um, and so the, the 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 wardrobe that we were coming down the runway in needed to be edgy. It needed to be rock with everything, rocker, you know. But pushing the envelope, even in the rock genre, right? Like, um, but it still had to be. Um, beautiful mm-hmm. uh feminine yet strong mm-hmm. and danny flynn was the stylist for that and so okay that that was him and his image you know for us to, yeah. to come to appear that way down the runway and and for the director i think it was mark romantic mm-hmm. you know if you you know when you see the video not only are we we coming down the runway fierce and strong but we have the nerve to slap that camera out of my way. Look at me. 
You know what I mean? Like, so good. Get that camera out of my face. Even Every- though I'm modeling clothes for you, you know. <laughs> It was amazing. It still is. If you look at it right now, I feel like that video could come out right now. Yes. And fit in, right? Hmm. If not lead, because I do think that a lot more people take their inspiration from that video than actually talk about having taken inspiration from that video. That video was a... It was an earthquake in, in, in style, period, let alone black style. So it just, whoo. When I think about it, okay, so this is it. This is the last song I'm going to ask you about. Even though we all know in bulk has song upon song upon song, we're just going with these because these are ones that I especially wanted uh, you to hear about here on Black Girl Songbook. But when I think about giving him something he can feel, we've moved into a different category. Um, who agreed off the rip that this was a good idea? Because if it was me, what if somebody said, who's the best writer ever, Danielle? Yes, rewrite her stuff. No, I would say, no, I'm not going to do that. But you all said, no, 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 no. Yes, yes. Let's give him something that he can feel. Well, it was uh, it was Denzel Foster and Thomas McElroy's idea. And I think for us, um, we did we did have that th- that thought like, ooh, Aretha Franklin, hopefully she won't be mad at us. <laughs> but I, but our approach and intention was to capture the essence of that movie sparkle. Yeah. So when we were in the studio recording that song, we had the movie playing <gasps> so that we could you know, really, yes, really capture the essence of what that was not focusing, you know, not trying to, um, to level out with Aretha, but just the, 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 it was, it was such a, a great movie within our culture Truly. and it was such a great moment in that movie and such a girl group moment. Like we, yes. our intention was to capture the essence of yes. that moment. And so um, we were just hoping that we were able to do that. And then, and then second, we were hoping hopefully Aretha Franklin will like it, you know. And, did you, and did we you, heard she did, too, by the way. I was just about to ask you, did you ever hear? I'm glad to know that she did. It, it's, yeah. a, it's a great, because, you know, Aretha Franklin loves to cover other people's records and really yeah. just steal those Man. records from folks. I'm telling you. <laughs> So for you guys to come in and really do, and then when I think about the impact again of the video, I wish I could sometimes to quote share, I wish I could turn back time, (laughs) even though I really don't, but to imagine a world in which we were just not all the time seeing beautiful, black, sexy women in amazing clothes just on television being their beautiful and sexy selves. We just didn't have a lot of it. 
I'm not saying we didn't have the quality, but we didn't have the quantity. And and Vogue would show up on whatever station you caught them on, giving us that. Was this conscious? Oh, you're welcome. Was this conscious? Like, did you guys know the crowns you were wearing? No, we didn't know that, but we were conscious of representing our culture and representing Black women. We were very conscious of that. So we were just hoping that, we were just hoping we were, you know, accepted and um, we were just doing, trying to do our best (laughs) as Black women, you know? Well, y'all did. Y'all did. Thank you. I'm not going to hold you because I know y'all are in vogue and y'all have places to go (laughs) and people to see. I know you guys are still out here working, singing, traveling. And so, again, thank you so much for joining us on Black Girl Songbook, the place in the space where Black women in music receive the credit that we are due. And we hope that you come back and visit us. Absolutely. Just let us know when, girl. We appreciate you. Many, many, many thanks to Cindy Heron and Terry Ellis of Invoke. Such a great conversation. Just blessed, blessed, blessed to have them on your Black Girl Songbook. You can keep up with Cindy and Terry and Invoke at Invoke Music at both Twitter and Instagram. And you know that you can always find me in these Twitter and Instagram streets at Danamo. That's D-A-N-A-M-O. I'm that all day on both platforms. And now for the amazing Black Girl Songbook team, we have producers Trudy Joseph and Donnie Beecham, story consultant Taj Rani, and we have DJ Steve Porter on sound design. Our talent booker is Allison Turner. And on additional production supervision, we have Juliette Littman and Chelsea Stark-Jones. Amanda Long is our publicist. And Sean Finnessy is always nearby with advice and encouragement. Black Girl Songbook is here for you on Spotify, via The Ringer, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is the place where the creativity and talent of Black women always comes first. We pay homage to all Black women in music, from the stage to the corner office. We make sure that they, that we, receive the credit where it's due. Hey now, we are going out. You know we love to go out with a song, and we're going to. It's called Don't Let Go, Love. It's from In Vogue. It's from the soundtrack to the amazing film, Set It Off. So let's listen to a beautiful little bit. Hello.